All right, thank you, Kristen, for reading our text this morning. We are um, come to the end of our series on the Minor Prophets. It's been an interesting ride so far. I'm hoping um, the series has helped you catch a vision for the bigger story of the Bible as we look at some of these obscure passages of Scripture, seeing what God is doing in uh, the bigger story. I hope the persistent message of judgment um, it's not something we just kind of tune out, but could operate like smelling salts maybe for us to, to wake us up, to shake us out of our apathy, right? It's not just every day we get here messages of judgment about what God is saying and doing. And I'm hoping also that God's mercy shines through these messages of judgment. Um, the contrast couldn't be clearer between uh, God's judgment and God's mercy in these uh, books here. And I'm also hoping this series has helped you see at a very practical level God's passion for justice in the public square. So, so some simple aims as we're coming to the end. I'm wrapping up Zechariah. Sebastian's going to finish up our series next week in Malachi. And so hopefully this series has been uh, profitable to you, beneficial to you. Uh, and just to give you a little context, we're stepping into the uh, post-exilic prophets, the last three minor prophets. And if you count Joel, uh, four of them are set in the time after the Babylonian exile. Um, we get the background for this period in the historical books of Ezra and Nehemiah and the prophetic books of Joel, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And so Josh last week did a phenomenal job uh, introducing us to the post-exilic prophets, their situation, returning home to the land, the main characters, which I have up on the screen, Joshua the high priest, Zerubbabel the governor, uh, their main goals, rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem in the book of Nehemiah. This was a difficult uh, time for God's people. When they returned, they were greeted with hostility from the new inhabitants of the land. Uh, they were, you know, stopped by the regional governors, uh, devastating economic conditions like the locust plague that Joel mentions, and widespread religious confusion and apathy. The temple they were building was only a shadow of Solomon's temple, and while David's descendant, Zerubbabel, was the governor of Judah, he was no king, and Jerusalem had no walls. There was no uh, throne, there was no crown, there was no standing army, a king only in name only. And the post-exilic prophets called God's people to remain faithful despite these difficult and disorienting circumstances. Zechariah had a particularly memorable way of saying it. He said in Zechariah 4.10, don't despise the day of small things. Don't, don't despise the day of small things. So if you don't remember anything else, um, that's going to be my big idea for this morning. Don't despise the day of small things because it prepares us for and points us to and makes it possible for us to understand the even greater day of the Lord. Now, Zechariah is one of the most challenging books in the Bible and one of the longest minor prophets. I was tempted to skip all the bizarre and confusing parts, but then I realized that would mean skipping most of the book. So <laughs> we're going to have a lot of fun this morning. 14 chapters. This is not a normal sermon, okay? This is my attempt to cover 14 chapters of really bizarre, apocalyptic 
sort of material. And so you really are going to need to have your Bible open for you. I can't read through. If I just read through Zechariah, that would be the end of the sermon. So I'm going to be just kind of doing an overview here. So you're going to really need to keep your Bible in front of you. I hope you have your coffee in hand. I hope you are like ready to go because ready or not, here we go. I'm going to cover Lord willing, 14 chapters before two o'clock this afternoon. <laughs> okay. So uh, I've got a simple outline, uh, simple, <laughs> uh, just going to do eight visions in chapters one through six. Um, then I'm going to do one question in chapter seven through eight. And then I've got two oracles to cover in chapters nine through 14. And my aim for this morning's message is that we would not despise the small things God is doing in our lives because God, we know God is using them to prepare us for greater things. So let's pray this morning that God would meet us as in this great book of the Bible, one of the greatest minor prophets here. Um, and so let's pray. Father, like Zechariah's audience, it's pretty easy for us to despise the small things you're doing in our lives, all the ways you call us to faithfulness in the mundane and everyday stuff of life. Uh, so would you help us be faithful in the little things that you have put before us? Help us to remember that you see those little acts uh, of faith as we do what you've called us to do. Uh, give us a vision, God, for what you're doing with those small things in our lives and the greater things before us as we take those first faltering steps of faith. And I pray that you'd get all the glory, God, in all the ways that we step out in faith and act in love uh, for the glory of your great name. So we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start with uh, Zechariah's eight visions. And I'm just going to jump right in because we really do got a cruise here. Um, but I've got a little slide from the Bible Project, um, which I'm just, if you guys just leave that up while I go through all, and then you know, if, if I miss a few things, that will give you kind of a frame of reference for where I'm at on these eight visions, you know, pictures, for the, like Josh said, for those of you that are a little ADD, <laughs> you can kind of follow along here. So Zechariah opens the book, as we read in our call to worship, with a call from God to repentance in verse 3. He reminds them that their fathers didn't repent, and God sent them into exile in Babylon. This generation, however, has the opportunity to return to God, rebuild the temple, rebuild Jerusalem, and once again be God's people under God's rule, right? So far, so good, right? You guys have got the context, you know where we're going, and then things get interesting. We enter into Zechariah's famous eight visions in the night. And just to give you a little bit of framework here, um, one of the famous Jewish rabbis uh, said this. He said, I think I have this up on the slide as well. He said, we shall never be able to discover the true interpretation until the teacher of righteousness comes. So looking at the book of Zechariah, he's like, there is no way to make heads or tails of this crazy book until the Messiah himself comes. And fortunately, we're standing on the other side of Messiah's coming. And so we can look at this book and we're going to see Jesus all over the place. I'm going to point to him, you know, multi many times and I'm not even going to get to all the illusions because there's so many in this book that I couldn't even cover them all in an intelligible fashion this morning. But if you're excited and want to study it more, please come talk to me because I left so many of my notes in my study and I'm trying to get through this material this morning. So vision number one, four horsemen on patrol. This is chapter one, verses seven through 17. And in this first vision here, as we have a little picture up there, uh, there are four horses that are sent out like scouts of a great king. And we see 
what is going on, to see what's going on throughout the earth. They report back that it is a time of world peace, which fits what we know about this Persian period. Darius the Great uh, was able to conquer all of Persia's foes and bring a period of peace. Kind of like the Roman peace brought a season of the Persian peace. And in verse 12, an angel asks, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah? And God answers that their time of punishment is over, that God will once again have mercy on them and bless them. Zechariah wants them to see that this brief Persian peace, which has allowed them to return to their homeland, is only a brief prelude to the peace and blessing that God is about to pour out on his people. So so this first vision gives us a, a vision of peace that's going to symbolize a much greater peace coming on God's world. And then the second vision, which you also see up there, uh, is four horns and four craftsmen, or four blacksmiths, depending on your translation. This is a very short little vision. And in the second vision, there's four horns representing nations that have oppressed Israel. Assyria, Babylon, we're not sure which four they represent, but some of Israel's great historic foes. But there's also four craftsmen or blacksmiths who oppose and overthrow these nations. Probably the Persians, right, who have come and brought this season of peace, which his first vision just talks about. Once again, the message is that God's people are moving from judgment to blessing. They're moving from exile to home, and God is at work. God is moving in the small things that God is doing in their lives. I told you, I'm moving fast here. Vision three, Vision 3, Jerusalem is measured. This is chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. In Zechariah's third vision, he sees a man with a measuring line measuring the dimensions of Jerusalem, right? Presumably, they've returned to the land. They need to not only build, rebuild the temple, they need to rebuild the city. And so the angel is saying, look, he stops the man from measuring the city according to its old dimensions and says, wait, the dimensions of this new Jerusalem are going to be way bigger than the old Jerusalem, right? People are going to flood in from the nations. God tells the people that they are the apple of his eye. He tells them that he is going to be a wall of fire. They're not even going to need city walls. God is going to be a wall of fire around them. To this embattled minority trying to reestablish their place in the world, Zechariah tells them that God is with them. From these small starts, you know, attempting to build the temple, attempting to build the walls, attempting to build the city, God is going to do great things. And then in vision four, I told you, we're moving fast. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, the division of Joshua the high priest. You remember from last week, Joshua, right? He was sent back to the land to be the high priest over this temple that they're building. And in Zechariah's fourth vision, we see Joshua the high priest, but he's covered in filthy garments, like covered in just refuse representing the people's sin. And of course, Satan is there accusing Joshua, the high priest, and God's people as he represents them of sin. But instead of further judgment against the people, right, Satan is rebuked and Joshua is given clean clothes, symbolizing the forgiveness of sins and a fresh start for God's people. This fresh start for God's people includes the coming of God's servant, the branch. Right, God's servant, if you know anything about the Old Testament, is a title mentioned Isaiah 52 and 53, particularly of a suffering servant, right, who makes this forgiveness that uh, has been promised to Joshua possible. 
Right? Not only does he talk about a servant, he also talks about a branch. And the branch represents God's king. We'll see that later in the book in chapter 6. We see it in Jeremiah 23.5 and 33.15. Together, we get a vision here in chapter 3 of a servant king. Right? A suffering servant that's going to come and be the king over God's people. And finally, in verse 9, we see that this fresh start includes the promise that God will remove their iniquities on a single day. In hindsight, we can pinpoint precisely that single day when Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross for our sins. Zechariah is looking forward to a day when Joshua's sin, the sin of the whole people, the sin of the whole world, will be placed on Jesus. Uh, Vision number five. Not only do we talk about Joshua, the high priest, we also get to talk about Zerubbabel, the royal heir. All of these threads are coming together from the story, the background, the narrative, and Zechariah is weaving this tapestry of hope and vision for the future. So in chapter four, Zechariah's fifth vision, we have a lampstand and we have two olive trees. Very interesting picture from the Kazirin. Like us, Zechariah is confused and asks, what, is, what does all this mean? Why, why, why two olive trees and why a lampstand and all this oil for uh, the lampstand? And the angel says the, the, the oil and the lampstand represents God's spirit that is going to be poured out on God's people. He says, says Zerubbabel, not by strength, not by might, but my spirit, says the Lord. Is the temple going to be rebuilt? Are God's promises going to come to fruition? God is going to pour out his spirit in powerful ways in fulfillment of his new covenant promises that we've seen in Ezekiel and Jeremiah already. Zerubbabel has already laid the foundation stone and God promises he will be able to complete it in his strength. And this is where we get the famous line that I'm going to be riffing off of throughout the sermon about despising the day of small things, right? God's people looked at the pathetic temple uh, around their building, just a shadow of Solomon's glorious temple, And they're tempted to despise this small start. But we know from Ephesians 2 that God has plans for a much greater temple with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone and people from all of the world being built into this great cosmic temple all for God's glory. All of these pictures are all coming into focus in Zechariah. He's weaving together all of these other minor prophets and giving us a vision forward of the Messiah as he comes, the great priest, the great temple, all of these things casting out into the future. We've got to keep moving. Vision number six, and I imagine these visions were disoriented to Zechariah as you guys are sitting here trying to take this kaleidoscopic, kaleidoscopic vision in. And they keep getting weirder. I love it. Vision six, the flying scroll in chapter five. Uh, the, the image here of Zechariah's sixth vision is a 30-foot by 15-foot flying scroll. So just imagine a little scroll flying around the sanctuary. It kind of hardly fit in here. Um, But the scroll represents the power of God's word to purify his people. The, The scroll deals with those who steal and swear falsely. And I love the image there. Like the scroll is just like, it's just like attacking these people and like, you know, beating them up and kicking them out of the city. Uh, also promises of God's what God is going to do in the world. He's promising a much more comprehensive purification of the people from sin that has happened to this point, right? It's, a, it's another allusion to the new covenant promise that God will write his law on his people's hearts and remember their sins no more from Jeremiah chapter 31. So for the flying scroll, we move in chapter 5 
to Zechariah's seventh vision, in which we see a woman in a large basket representing Israel's sin and wickedness. Okay? And fortunately, God sends two more women, these with storks' wings. I know, this is weird, right? To come and fly this basket away where it will no longer corrupt God's people. I don't know why it's a woman, but gets you know, carted off to Babylon, the land of Shinar, where it's taken away from God's people. God's removal of sin is, a once again, a central promise of the new covenant, right? For I will forgive their iniquities and remember their sins no more, right? These visions are visions of what God is going to do on behalf of God's people and who have been stuck in their sin, judged, sent into exile. And finally, vision number eight in chapter six, four chariots on patrol. Finally, if you're trying to full belong, I know this is very fast paced here. In Zechariah's eighth vision, we see four chariots. They're speeding to the north and the south country, the elections in which Israel's greatest enemies came. So the Assyrians and the Babylonians would come from the north, the Egyptians from the south. And once again, right, we see as in the first vision, uh, we see peace and God's spirit resting on the places that typically would be areas in which God's enemies would come. God's spirit and God's peace is resting over those places so that God's people can experience his blessing. So these eight visions, are you guys still hanging with me? Eight visions. Did I, did I just go through eight visions in about five minutes? Okay, one bonus. I, I know we don't have, but there's an important bonus. It's not a vision. This time it's a sign act. God tells the people to make a crown for Joshua. So this is the end of chapter 6, 9 through 15. And this is very important symbolic language because it's bringing together everything that happened in the first eight visions to some extent. Right? Three men have just arrived from Babylon uh, bearing gold and silver and all these supplies to build the temple. And uh, an angel says, make a crown for Joshua, the high priest. Right? He's going to be this mysterious branch figure. He's going to be the servant king, or now we learn he's going to be a priest king. For a high priest without a temple and this Davidic heir to the, without a crown or throne or palace, Zerubbabel, this is a very important sign that God will again take up his throne and dwell among his people in the temple. And Zechariah promises the day when these two great offices, the prophet or the priest and the king, will be combined into one person, and of course, in hindsight, we can see that person is Jesus, our long-awaited prophet, priest, and king. So all of these lines from the Old Testament are all coming together in Zechariah, all towards pointing inevitably to Jesus and his rule and his reign. All of these visions, and especially this final sign, show us how the day of small things prepares for a much greater day. What starts... Pretty small in terms of a temple, what starts very small in terms of this priesthood, what starts very small in terms of Zerubbabel's role, what feels like a pretty pathetic beginning, ultimately is going to have a great and glorious ending. And as we're working our way through this book, I want you to be thinking of the small things God is doing in your life that you might be tempted to dismiss or despise. Right? It's easy to look at the, the little things, right? God's people in their time as they returned and tried to rebuild this temple and, and tried to carry on as God's people, right? We're tempted to despise the work that God was doing. Without this vision, right, they were just like, God, wh what are you even doing? Have you abandoned us? Are you even present? Are you even in our lives? Think about the small things God is doing in your life, maybe that are discouraging, that are disillusioning, that don't measure up to your expectations. There's an opportunity to give 
that disillusionment, that discouragement to God this morning uh, to be swept up into this greater vision that God has for you in the very little, uh, sometimes unseen work that God has called us to. So after these first eight visions and a sign in chapter one through six, we get a new section of the book. Two years after the first, in it a delegation is sent from one of the outlying Jewish communities asking if they should keep fasting on the fifth month, as was their tradition during the Babylonian exile. So this is in chapter 7. I think I have the text up there on the screen so you can kind of follow along, be oriented along there. Here's their one question. Should we keep fasting um, even though we've returned to the land? We fasted 70 years for a return to God's land, to be the people of God again, for the temple to be restored, for God's king to come back. Should we keep fasting? Fasting, even though they've returned to the land, it still feels like a time of fasting. It's still a time of suffering. God hasn't fulfilled all his promises. And so they wonder, should we just keep fasting, I guess? Even though we've returned to the land. Chapter 7 and 8 provide God's answer. And I'm going to do that in very quick order here. First, in chapter 7, God rebukes them for fasting their, during their captivity with the wrong motives. In Zechariah 7, 5 through 6, he says, Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? He also questions whether they're fasting uh, was connected to true repentance. As in Isaiah 58, he asks, was there true justice happening? In Zechariah 7, 9 through 10, says the Lord, render true judgment, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor. Let none of you devise evil against another in your hearts. But in chapter 8, all that changes. In Zechariah 8, 1 through 3, we see the Lord of the Lord came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm jealous for Zion with great jealousy. I'm jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I've returned to Zion. I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. He spends verses 3 through 17 unpacking the glorious future of Jerusalem. And finally, in verse 19, he answers their question. He says that, that day there will be no fasting but feasting uh, because of all the glorious work that God is going to do among them. That time of fasting may remain, but God has a future day when he will fulfill all of his promises and it will be a day of glorious feasting. Once again, small things like fasting, kindness and mercy, showing justice to the marginalized, prepare the way for God's kingdom. Again, what are, the, what are the small things God is doing in your life? Is there fasting in your life? Ever, ever take time to fast at the unrealized dreams, the frustrations, the futility that you feel? Uh, are, there, are there genuine steps of repentance in your life as you recognize areas where God says, man, I need to change. I need to grow. Right? Are there acts of kindness and mercy this week that you can look to? Steps to pursue justice in uh, the public square, in the community where we live, right? Don't despise these simple acts. Don't despise these small things. God is working in those everyday acts of faithfulness. In the final section of the book, chapters 9 through 14, this ragtag remnant who returned to the land get a vision of their future king and future kingdom. So there are two great oracles rounding out the book. And an oracle is simply an authoritative message from God of judgment and hope. And so we're going to get the first oracle is chapter 9, 
and then the second chapter 9 through 11, 7, and then the next one is 12 through 14. And so I want to just give you a quick overview. These are bizarre, they're apocalyptic, and so I'm trying to summarize four incredible chapters, jam, five incredible chapters, jam-packed with hope of God's future king and God's future kingdom. So here in chapter 9, it involves judgment against the nations surrounding Israel and around Palestine. The opening verses talk about God winning a victory against all Israel's immediate enemies. But more importantly, it includes with yet another promise of the king who would come. And so in Zechariah 9.9, one of the most quoted verses in the New Testament around the Passion narrative, uh, Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, right? This is a text. It's taken out all four Gospels. It's alluded to. It's quoted specifically in Matthew and in John. I think I have a slide with those parallel texts. You know, the king is coming uh, to his own, and he's coming to his people humble and on a donkey. Zechariah's contemporaries were waiting for Zerubbabel or one of his immediate descendants to claim the throne, but Zechariah looks into the future, to the coming of Christ and his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday to the, and the final defeat of his enemies. So once again, we get this vision of the future. Zechariah said, don't, don't despise the day of small things. The king is coming and he's going to come, humble, riding on a donkey. He's going to come. He's going to bring rescue and redemption. In chapter 10 and 11, perhaps the most confusing in the whole book, Zechariah turns from the image of a king to that of a shepherd. And I'll cover these really quickly. You won't even have time to read them because I'm going to summarize them in just a few words here. In chapter 10, God promises that he will punish the shepherds or leaders for not caring for his people. God is the good shepherd, right? Of course, Psalm 23, who cares for his flock. And he is going to raise them up. He's going to raise up the good shepherd, you know, Jesus, the Messiah, to come and shepherd his flock. And they're going to be victorious over their enemies. But then in chapter 11, it's kind of the opposite. The flock is given into the hands of worthless shepherds for 30 pieces of silver, the very amount Judas betrayed uh, Jesus for. And it seems that in chapter 11, we're getting a vision, perhaps, of what's going to happen to God's people who've rejected their Messiah and what's going to happen at 70 AD as the flock is given over to Romans who are going to do some very barbaric uh, punishments to God's people. And then finally, chapter 12 through 14 close with the final oracle of victory. In chapter 12, 1 through 9, we get a vivid picture of Jerusalem's military triumph over all her foes. But in chapter 12, 10, God also promises grace. He says, I will pour out a spirit of grace, of pleas and mercy, so that they will look on him whom they have pierced and shall mourn for him. Zechariah is alluding to the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the one who is pierced for our transgressions, and the response of God's people is, of course, mourning, right? God's true people of God as they recognize their Messiah and what he's done. Chapter 13 follows up on this promise saying that on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. As this book unfolds, we just get more and more of Jesus, the suffering servant, the triumphant king, the one who's pierced for our transgressions. Uh, we see the ultimate solution, right, to Israel's uncleanness, to their sin, to their iniquity. All of it is going to be solved by this 
priest king, this servant king that's going to come and rescue his people. God promises to rid the land of idols, false prophets, false shepherds, and finally to refine his people. And then finally in chapter 14, we get this graphic picture of a vicious battle in which God's people are overwhelmed by the nations and then dramatically rescued by God. The final rescue leads to the great day of the Lord. Zechariah 14, 8 through 9, we read, On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea, and it shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. This is the happy ending that we see picked up in more detail in Revelation 22, right? God's people, right, who have been exiled, who have been judged, brought back to the land, finally seated under their king in a new heavens and a new earth with with a river of life flowing out from the temple, uh, the trees of life on either side of that river bringing healing to the nations. And that's where the book of Zechariah ends. I love that. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. We've been on quite a ride, right? From the anticlimactic return to the land, a high priest without a temple, the descendants of kings without a palace, to God's reign over all the earth. Until we arrive at that great day, Zechariah warns us not to despise the day of small things because this is where most of us live most of our lives. Paul Tripp says it well. The fact of the matter is that the transforming work of grace is more of a mundane process than it is a series of few dramatic events. Personal heart and life change is always a process. And where does that process take place? It takes place where you and I live every day. And where do we live? We all live in the same address, the utterly mundane. So in closing, what are the small things you are tempted to despise? Are you tempted to despise the work of God in his kingdom, right, in our, in our city and around the world as you look at what God is doing in the world today? Do, do the news headlines overwhelm you with all the drama happening, or are you seeing God's kingdom at work? Are you tempted to despise the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our midst? Are you tempted to despise the work of Jesus, his grace, his forgiveness, his mercy to still win and transform hearts? Are you tempted to despise the very ordinary people like me that make up the church, that you look around you and go, these people, really? They're going to they're gonna change the world? Are you tempted to despise the ordinary means of grace that God uses to transform us? Or are you tempted to despise the power of prayer? Right, to actually bring change in your life? Are you tempted to despise the value of God's word and its power to transform hearts and lives? Are you tempted to despise the mundane work right, of investing in your friendships, in your marriage, in your kids, and carry on that faith to the next generation? Are you tempted to despise the work of welcoming people into your home and life, sharing the gospel with those around us, doing justice in our city? I think Zechariah gives us an opportunity here to take stock of areas in our lives, right, where we're discouraged, where we just look at our lives and we're not where we want to be. We're not where we feel like we're supposed to be. We're, we're struggling to despise the little things God is doing in our lives, and he wants to give us a much bigger vision of what God is doing in the world. And each of the visions, the oracles, all are painting a picture, right, that the little Steps we're taking today in faithfulness, the little mundane things we're doing are preparing us for that eternal weight of glory. 
Uh, one of my favorite illustrations, I think I'll close here uh, with, with C.S. Lewis, uh, that helps maybe paint just a picture for you, because I realize lots of pictures in this sermon, but lots of, lots of broad ideas, just something maybe you could get a hold, your he- get a hold of that would be a little more tangible and concrete. He says this, he says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, because you can understand what he's doing, you want, first, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You know that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. Don't despise the day of small things. God is still carrying forward his purposes in the small and the mundane things, and we're invited to trust him in the unfolding of his great story and the advance of his great kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Zechariah. We thank you for its many prophecies of that king that would come, a suffering servant that would be pierced for our transgressions, right? A king who would ride into Jerusalem humbly to come and rescue his people. God, we just thank you for the kaleidoscopic vision of this great and glorious future where you would dwell with your people. You would be king over all the earth. Uh, your glory will fill the earth as the, gover- as the waters cover the sea. God, we, we thank you for the images and the minor prophets that help us see that future, de- that future destiny that we have. That in our mundane, everyday, ordinary, normal lives, God, that we can catch a vision for the big things you are doing in the world. And so uh, today, as we take stock of those uh, little things, those mundane things you're doing in our lives, those small steps of faithfulness, God, would we do them in great faith and great expectation, God, that you are preparing for us a great work. And so uh, we commit uh, this time and uh, this work to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So each week,